Welcome to the Gloria Purvis podcast, where we talk about the issues in the Catholic Church and in society that matter to you and to me. And I'm glad you're here to have that conversation with me. My guest today is Erica Bakiaki. Erica is a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center and a senior fellow at the Abigail Adams Institute. She is the editor of Women, Sex, and the Church, A Case for Catholic Teaching, and The Cost of Choice, Women Evaluate the Impact of Abortion. Her new book is called The Rights of Women, Reclaiming a Lost Vision. Erica is profoundly pro-woman. She's an intellectual, and an intellectual with real-life experiences that you'll hear shape her perspective. I met Erica many years ago, and I found sort of like a kindred spirit in her and our desire for women's authentic liberation. What is an authentic feminism and how does that play out? And one of the discussions, I think, in modern feminism that doesn't have a Christian ethos completely excises men from the feminist discussion. We just accept in these discussions that men are going to harm us. And so what are the ways in which we can protect and defend ourselves while also having our own liberty and autonomy, if you will? And Erica and I sort of address that from a different perspective, like what is the role of men in women's liberation, the male libido, and things like that, that I don't think you'll really hear anywhere else, at least not between two Catholic women with feminist backgrounds in this way. We also engage deeply with a variety of historical figures, female historical figures who have founded movements, who were abolitionists, who were for suffrage, who were for women's rights, who were for temperance. And Erica really champions the thought of these women as it pertains to authentic women's liberation and bringing those perspectives back into our conversation today. And so I'm hoping you'll stay tuned for this very important conversation and put on your listening ears because there's a lot of nuance here. So you got to pay attention. The Gloria Purvis podcast is a production of America Media, where real honest conversations are happening on the most important issues at the intersection of the church and the world. And that's unique. Look, you may not agree with everything we publish or even everything we talk about on this podcast, and that's okay. I mean, that's healthy. We need to listen to each other and be open to different ideas and perspectives. So if this podcast is meaningful to you, please support it by getting a digital subscription to America. How do you do that? Go to americamagazine.org slash subscribe and sign up today. The link is in the show notes. Stick around. My conversation with Erica Bakiaki is up next. Erica, I'm so happy to talk to you today. It's great to be with you, Gloria. You know, what makes me really excited too is that I know you in real life. Like we met many years ago at a Catholic Women's Forum event, and I just felt like I met a fellow sister in the cause of right, true, authentic women's liberation and, you know, to elevate the discussion and to make us think more differently than what society says women need for freedom and all this kind of, you know, stuff I was put. But I I think also your own story of coming to a conversion about authentic women's freedom. And I was wondering if you'd be willing to share some of that, whatever you'd like to share. 
Yeah, it's a long story. I'll try to keep it brief. I'm trying to learn how to be briefer, you know, as we get on these <laughs> these podcasts. But yeah, it's so wonderful to be with you, Gloria. I admire you a great deal and oh. felt the same way when we first met. I grew up in a family where my mom was married and divorced three times by the time I reached my 19th birthday. And I also suffered two really tragic events apart from the divorces in my life, which was that I had a friend when I was 16 take his own life and a friend when I was 19 take his own life. Mm. And so all of that led to a lot of, uh, I would say, emotional turmoil in my life, but not before I kind of acted out in all the ways that a woman or a girl without her father would. And that is just with kind of sex, drugs, and rock and roll, I guess is the easiest way to put it. Mm -hmm. So by the time I was about 17, I'd found myself in Alcoholics Anonymous and spent about five years there before I came back to the Catholic Church. Mm. But along the way, I went to college up at Middlebury College and spent a good deal of the time at the very, probably the first two years or so in the Women's Center on campus. And, you know, at that point, I started taking women's studies classes. And, you know, I was in Vermont, that's where Middlebury is, and mm -hmm. volunteered one summer for then Congressman Bernie Sanders. And so I called myself, I think, a socialist feminist at that point. But I was also in AA. And so learning how to pray. And really, prayer was what kind of kept me sane mm -hmm. all through the day. But I didn't understand anything of Christianity. In fact, I would say I was pretty anti-Christian at that point, being as feminist as I was. Didn't know a lot about the church, even though I'd been baptized in the church, but just thought it was, you know, the most, obviously, whatever, whatever you know, radical feminist thinks, which is the most misogynistic institution on earth. Mm -hmm. And so how did I come from there <laughs> to being a Catholic woman? And the story's a long one, but really unfolds from just being on my knees. I had the occasion to go to a lecture by a Catholic worker, you know, someone from the Catholic workers movement. Oh, and I day. went to argue with him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And as it turned out, he really won me over. And I spent the evening with him and someone from the Newman Center on campus talking kind of over coffee about spiritual things. And they both won me over and I ended up at a Newman <laughs> Club meeting. <laughs> and I guess they say the rest is history. I mean, I guess the last part of it is that I went back to my dorm room after that meeting and I was really quite confused because I was really moved by the students. You know, it was the first time I'd met anyone on my college campus who talked about prayer and humility and the spiritual life and the peace that came with prayer, but they had interspersed in all of this talk, you know, all this God talk, talk of like Jesus and Mary and the mm -hmm. saints. And it was very <laughs> overwhelming to me. So the last kind of part that I'll say, and everybody who had, who's had a conversion will understand from here is, but I just literally got on my knees and I said to God, you know, you and I are friends, right? Like, I, <laughs> could you, could you tell me if you have a son? <laughs> and, um, so kind of one of the next days there, I, uh, mere Christianity was put on my doorstep. Look and, at um, that. Mm. And uh, C.S. Lewis really helped me along. And and um, from there, I kind of made my way back through a lot of, lot of study, I would say, and ended up doing a master's in theology and really studying, you know, Thomas Aquinas, Augustine, the Patristic Fathers, and a lot of ancient thinkers too, which is what informs, I, I'd say, my work today. And I, I found it interesting that right now, your work, at least in the most recent book that you're writing, also takes us back to the vision of English philosopher Mary Wollstonecraft. Can you tell us who this 18th century woman was? What is it about her vision of womanhood that you feel we really need it, you know, today? Yeah, she, you know, it's funny. I read her as a women's studies student way back, but like many people who read her, I, I'm sure I read excerpts from her work and so only really understood her as kind of this advocate for women's equal education, 
for women's, you know, entry into the professions and all those things we have now. So like, why do we care about Mary Wollstonecraft? And so the reason why we do, and I, I would learn this when I would read her probably, you know, again, I don't know, five, six years ago. And I was just dumbfounded in her vindication of the rights of women that she has this incredibly deep moral vision, philosophical vision that is kind of the why that gives us the reasons why women should have those rights. And what she does is basically say that women need rights in order to fulfill their duties. And what are those duties? Well, she lays them out. Duties to God to kind of discern the truth, duties to family, you know, to take care of children, to take care of elderly parents. She has incredibly beautiful things to say about marriage. And so what she understood is the end of human life was really virtue. So she didn't see freedom the way we Americans see it as really, you know, freedom to kind of live out our own purposes. She saw Mm -hmm. freedom as a means towards certain ends. And what were those ends? But virtue and wisdom. And so women, just like men, because we're both rational creatures, ought to be free to pursue these ends of wisdom and virtue through those our duties. And so rights were necessary in order to fulfill our duties. And one of the things that I've been really focusing on in terms of rights is even to help people understand rights, like that rights can never run counter to the nature of a thing. And so to really grapple with what does it mean to be a woman? What is our nature? And from that, what kind of obligations, not in a like in a burdensome kind of way, but just in a holistic way, what kind of obligations would we have? And of course, it seems like to me, <laughs> the current movement wants us to be devoid <laughs> of all these obligations, that these obligations are our enemies of progress. So, you know, to have children could be seen as this onerous, unfair, biological oppressor <laughs> of women. And that the most true freedom is for us to be completely severed from any obligations to anybody else except our own idea of self-fulfillment, pleasure, happiness, however that plays out, that it's all good. But when you look at it from the way of Mary Wollstonecraft, I mean, the idea of virtue, that our freedom is to be used for us to grow in virtue and wisdom, well, that's a completely different proposition. But then I also find, Erica, in this, there's also a lot of fear because there's some vulnerability with women having the the sort of interdependence with their husbands, if you will, or the fathers of their children, you know, if you're not married, whatever. But there's sort of a vulnerability that what if the guy's no good and he bails on you? And that kind of, to me, seems to fuel a lot of the discussions around why it is believed that women need to be able to have, as they call it, bodily autonomy, i.e. abortion, things like that. Because these obligations, these duties that happen from these relationships that we have, it it seems like people just say (laughs) they harm us more than help us. So how would we be able to have this conversation to really encourage women in this way? And how might we think differently about, I guess, protecting women in these situations? Yeah, I think we have to get back. I think you've nailed it. Absolutely. And we have to get back to sort of the philosophical underpinnings that got us to this place of seeing autonomy as kind of the be all and end all. And where we have to go really is to modern philosophy. So I won't get into the weeds here, but really (laughs) there's an understanding of rights and it's how we tend to think about rights as Americans in a lot of abstraction that Thomas Hobbes, John Locke especially, who is very influential on the American founding 
it kind of has this idea that we're these autonomous individuals all by ourselves. Though Locke has an understanding of the family, but all by ourselves. And then we enter into liberal kind of citizenship as these autonomous individuals with our own rights. Well, it's individual men who enter into right. kind of citizenship <laughs> and who's left behind, but the women taking care of the children mm-hmm. in the home. And so what happens is when women stand on kind of this liberal philosophical edifice to build rights claims, they basically also leave the children behind right. because they think they have to join men in this really kind of mythical world of these you know, abstract autonomous individuals, right? Mm-hmm. And so they're grounding rights on just a complete kind of myth. And it's mythical for men too. Right. And so kind of the way I think about it, and this is when you really get to the 19th century suffragists in our country is that you can kind of think about equality between men and women by saying women should be just like men, which Mm. is, you know, capable of kind of entering the public sphere without children. Therefore, they must have something like abortion. Or you could say men could meet women at a high standard of care, reciprocity, responsibility. And that's not to say that men are irresponsible. It's just to say that you have these two visions of what kind of equality and collaboration would look like. And the women's rights movement in the earliest days wanted men to meet women at that high standard of care. And so they knew about abortion then. Abortion was becoming more widely available. And they were these, you know, 19th century women's rights advocates were on board with prohibiting it. Because why? Not only because they understood that there was a human being who needed to be protected and had enormous value, of course, as a child in the womb, but also because they worried that allowing abortion would allow men to, that would basically, you know, give men all the power in the sexual relationship, power they already had. And so it would double down on something that was already destructive to women. And so what they wanted to do instead was say, no, let's make sure that sexual relations are only entered into when women are, you know, (laughs) ready and able to have another child. And so both Wollstonecraft and those early women's rights advocates really talked about the want of male chastity as Mm. being really that what caused the most kind of harm to women and that it was the need for men to have kind of integrated sexual lives was something that they saw to be kind of a precondition, I would say, to women's equality. And that's something that was entirely forgotten once we got to the 1970s and brought on kind of, you know, contraception and abortion as being the be all and end all, or at least the sin qua non of the women's movement. Very, very different way of thinking than the early women's rights advocates. But, you know, I think a lot of today, what men are encouraged to be are defilers, frankly, defilers of women instead of defenders of our virtue. And the concept of self-mastery is akin to being the opposite of men having their own freedom, their own sexual freedom. And I think that that's a danger also, because I do think a man untethered from sexual self-control is is dangerous, frankly, not necessarily in the criminal way, but dangerous in the terms of kind of chaos that can be created in society. Uh, This person is just going around from woman to woman to woman to woman and treating them as consumable objects, that that does immense harm to male and female relationships, um, trust between the sexes. Also, in a way that women 
experience sex, you know, that's different from men. I don't think we've even really dealt with that, that women are, frankly, I think, to be blunt, told to treat their bodies like a merry-go-round. You know, anybody can get on this ride. But what happens is we realize there's a lot of go-round and very little merry in that experience. (laughs) Right, Right? But how do we change that conversation? How do we get people to think differently? And it is exactly talking about this and grappling with who we are as women distinct from men. Oh, you had so much great insight there. And I think you're absolutely right that self-mastery is kind of the key here and that both Mary Wilsoncraft and those early women's rights advocates understood exactly, as you say, kind of the danger of undisciplined male kind of libido, basically. Mm-hmm. And I think I just, I kind of want to get right at that because it's sort of the key to unlocking the purpose of my book, but I think it's also the way back from this sort of insanity that we're in the middle of. And that is just to understand not just kind of how are men and women the same, how are men and women different, but really this understanding of sexual asymmetry, that there's a real inequality when it comes to sex between men and women. And there's, I want to kind of riddle out, list out what those ways are. Well, the obvious one is that men and women engage in the same sexual act, but it's women who can get pregnant. But there's other ones too. And that is because of the testosterone that is blazing through, especially young men's, but all men's bodies, they are, you know, have a stronger libido. They have more sexual desire, but also kind of want to get to the end intercourse as quickly as they can. Whereas women have a totally different hormone, which is estrogen. And so in our very bodies, we're built differently. And there's an asymmetry so that with estrogen, women have this deep connectivity to sex during sex and after sex, of course, also with their own children in Mm -hmm. pregnancy and breastfeeding. And this is exactly why you see so many broken hearts among women as you, I mean, I love the (laughs) merry-go-round idea (laughs) where there's a lot of go-round without much merry because that's exactly right. Like women are kind of left in some ways by no fault of their own, just how their bodies are built, but they don't understand that about themselves. And so they think they can have sex just like these kind of undisciplined men and they're deeply hurt by it. And so we have lots and lots of, I'd say, hurt among women who don't know that they have kind of a different way of being sexually and that it is really, you know, John Paul II had this great language of how men need to, and this is a theme of Mary Wollstonecraft. It's a theme of the 19th century women's rights advocates that's totally left by the 1970s, that men need to really conform their own sexual desires to women's kind of sexual needs that take longer, you know, that take that right. need commitment. Like women want commitment. That's how they enjoy sex is within commitment so that they can be vulnerable. And that's what allows them to enjoy sex most of all. So I would say that it's really, we've lost this idea entirely of male sexual self-mastery. Ooh, sister, let me just tell you, you said so much there that I was internally cheering about this notion of there's an asymmetry there. I mean, I do think this imbalance of power, if you will, is important. I mean, feminists today, I think we all, all feminists, in my opinion, all of us, and I think John Paul II is a feminist, an authentic feminist, look and understand this sort of asymmetry, but not necessarily in the same kind of way. We may disagree about what needs to happen to change this imbalance of power. In some cases, you have feminists really, I don't, I don't know if they grasp it like this, but really okay with women doing violence and harm to their bodies because of this imbalance. Yeah. I mean, I think it's funny because it's a question of, you know, what do you say to a man? And I think what I do with my sons, I mean, I have three sons and at least with the older ones, it's just trying to teach them that they have all of that testosterone blazing through them. 
and it's beautiful and it's good and it makes them have, you know, this right. incredible kind of power. But the where they're supposed to turn that is inward toward mastering themselves. And so it's not through acts of violence and aggression outward, although, of course, sports takes right. care of a lot of that and other types of, you know, competitive Physical activity play stuff, yeah. is great. But that that's kind of the goal, I think, of mas- is a really healthy masculinity is taking that kind of desire to dominate or the aggression and helping them to master themselves and those desires so that they can be of service to others. And when you see really heroic men, that's what you see. It's men who are masters of their passions. And it is mm-hmm. a beautiful, beautiful thing. And it's what's sad to me too, is that, as you say, I mean, it's women who not only are doing violence to themselves and kind of an imitation of, I guess, toxic masculinity, right? Is violence mm-hmm. outward. So right. they're doing violence mm-hmm. inward, but it's also an imitation but as we said, kind of equality of autonomy, equality of domination, equality of violence, that that's how they're joining men is doing violence, say, to their own unborn child and thinking that's equality. Right. You know, and that to me is some of kind of the worst stuff out there. And so instead we can see, no, let's see that equality is really in kind of living in accord with the highest part in us, which is yes. again, living in accord with our reason, in accord with virtue and bringing two people together who have, yes, these passions that need to be integrated upward toward themselves as rational beings, but also in terms of living in accord with what God would want for them. And that brings about so much more harmony, so much more collaboration, Mm -hmm. reciprocity, trust, all those things that make for such good relationships, good marriages, good parenting, happy children, you know, but it takes work. It takes, you and I both knew that. It takes a lot of work on ourselves to be the masters of ourselves so that we can be of great service to others. We'll be back in a minute. And I also think, you know, there are things that we should start maybe changing in society to help us with this, because in the world in which we live right now, we know that in some cases, women feel like they don't really have any other choices outside of hookup culture, abortion, artificial contraception. And in fact, one of the ways they tell women they can exercise their power is to be enticing to men. And I'm like, and this is just the quite the opposite of what's good for us. But I also will say, Erica, I could imagine there's some listeners hearing you say these things about men and their libido and somehow misinterpreting that to mean that women are always only everywhere, these quiet, docile, <laughs> unthinking, you know what I mean? And that's not at all the vision, you know, that you have of womanhood. I mean, your life, I mean, you're a lawyer, you're a mother of seven, you are married. So I know you don't think that women have to be these docile, quiet, never having an opinion, challenging male authority type of thing. Because I know there's somebody probably listening and mistakenly thinking that that's what you're proposing, but you're not. Yeah, I'm not sure how having a greater libido gets you greater authority. <laughs> I don't know, I don't know where that comes about. But no, I mean, I think that's one of the great things about Wollstonecraft too is that she just makes the very simple point. She sort of talks about it as like the logic of virtue or the logic of the soul, which is that both men and women are equal in their capacity for virtue because they are Mm. rational creatures. And I just I think that is just such a beautiful and very simple way of understanding equality. And we have libidos too that we need to master as, yes, as women as well, okay? Yeah. Right? <laughs> so I think that's that's very important. But I, I was wondering also, there were so many influencers that you had in the book that I found interesting. So I'm wondering what in particular 
you liked about these women, like Florence Kelly, who also, I went to Cornell University. She's a Cornell graduate as well and a foundress of the NAACP. She was an abolitionist and for women's rights. Sarah Grimke, a fellow Charlestonian. I mean, she's from Charleston, where I was from in South Carolina, an abolitionist. And her strong beliefs on abolition of slavery caused her to have to really <laughs> can't live in Charleston, South Carolina with those views at that time. And then Polly Murray, a Black woman and someone that self-identifies also as what people say is queer, how the the influences of some of these women in their thinking that you found helpful. Yeah. So what I do in the book is I start with Mary Wollstonecraft or the course of two chapters. And then I basically trace her thought through the rest of, well, up until today, I guess you'd say. And so Grimke is a really important character. Sarah Grimke, as you say, she left the South with her sister in order to basically speak her mind about the grave evils of slavery. And what she found when she got to the North (laughs) was that there were some people who also didn't want to hear her and not because, well, maybe because she was speaking about slavery, but most particularly because she was a woman. Woman. And so she Mm -hmm. shared this experience that Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Lucretia Mott, two other kind of founders of the women's movement in our country shared. Those two women went to London, I think it was 1840, for the World's Anti-Slavery Convention. And they went there, Stanton on her honeymoon, (laughs) and they were (laughs) kept out of the convention because they were women. And so they got back to the States and they, Grimke had actually been an early reader of Mary Wollstonecraft. So had Lucretia Mott. Stanton knew her a bit, not as well as the others, but that's when, you know, they brought about their own first convention in Seneca Falls, the Declaration of Sentiments and Resolutions there in, in 1848. And what's fascinating is, I mean, there's so much to say about what they did at Seneca Falls, but what you kind of don't know, unless you know some of the history of Grimke, was a lot of the, what they talk about is how women really weren't allowed to speak in public. Right. And so what they say is like, look, women have, sounding very Wilson-Craft in here, women have the same capabilities and the same responsibilities as men to basically fight for every righteous cause by every righteous means. And they are very much talking about slavery at that point, but also, Mm -hmm. of course, their own capacity to speak the truth in public, for their own capacity to be educated, entry into the profession, so they wouldn't be beholden just to either prostitution or marriage to a bad man. I mean, these are the kinds of things that Sarah wanted. She also, and the reason she's really important in my book too, is because she was, I think, one of the first people to use the term voluntary motherhood. There are these differences between men and women, and it needs to be up to women to what she says is control all preliminaries, by which she does not mean abortion. And she doesn't even mean contraception. She just means that they should be the ones who have a say in whether they should have sex or not, that there shouldn't be this male sexual presumption, even in marriage, because of the asymmetries, because of women being the ones who carry children, the ones who engage in early childcare, certainly then, but also today. And so there shouldn't be something like marital rape or even any type of coercion towards sex. So that's Sarah Grimke. I'm so glad you mentioned Seneca Falls because there have been floating around in some Catholic circles that the whole feminist movement in Seneca Falls from the very beginning was anti- family, anti-man, and even, I think some people haven't really engaged with the writing. They want to claim that it was anti-all-male priesthood. They try to say, yeah, see, see, right there in the documents itself, it's against all-male priesthood. And I was like, that's just a complete dishonest reading of the documents. Yeah, I think what I would say in response to the Seneca Falls thing is that the misstep there is that 
these women were, I think, almost exclusively Protestant women. Right, no Catholics. So there was certainly a desire for an entry of women into kind of Protestant ministry in that document. Yes. But because Catholicism has a very different ecclesiology, a very different understanding of what a priest is from a minister, right. then they're like apples and oranges. It doesn't make sense to compare those kinds of things. But there is a sort of what I guess I'm being told is called a bro Catholicism that's rearing its head right now, yes. in which there's a response to the way in which men are thought of in our culture today, mm-hmm. whether it's just lots of porn, video games, or not or even just what how men are educated, boys are educated without regard to you know their need for outside. I mean, there's all sorts of ways in which I think men are not treated in terms of their dignity in our right. culture. And so I can definitely understand why there's kind of a backlash against 1970s feminism. And in fact, that's what my book is deeply engaging, you know? Anything you want to add maybe about Polly Murray? Yeah, I mean, Polly Murray is, uh, both Florence Kelly and Polly Murray are huge figures in the book. Florence Kelly, as you say, founder of the NAACP, she also was a giant figure in making sure that women were protected from industrialization mm-hmm. because of their crucial role in caring for children. And she really understood that you couldn't have the kind of right to contract. Um, you know, the industrial capitalists couldn't just have this right to contract without understanding the family responsibilities that their employees had. And she is just a huge, huge figure who comes up again and again in the book, I would say, and is a model for us today. I mean, Polly Murray is a real, I think, hero in the book because she, for those who don't know her background, she was the only woman to graduate from her Howard Law School class. I believe she graduated first, if I remember correctly. She got a master's of law from Berkeley. And she was very, very close with Eleanor Roosevelt And Polly Murray was, in 1951, wrote a book that Thurgood Marshall called The Bible of Civil Rights Lawyers. So she was just this giant in the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. And so President Kennedy, when he formed his Commission on the Status of Women, put Eleanor Roosevelt at the helm of that commission where she would be chair until her death in 1962. But Polly Murray was really the intellectual weight of that commission. Sometimes I think when we get into our circles as Catholics, that they believe the truth can only be found or kernels of truth can only be found by certain people living a certain way. And I don't think that way. I think that there can be even in people that we think are living contrary to what we think would be human flourishing, they can have a kernel of the truth and something for us to pursue and consider. And so I'm glad that you included a variety of women of different backgrounds, not even all Catholic, right? Most of them no, I don't think are Catholic, no, no. right? Yeah. That we need to grapple with this and to really try to pursue truth where it may be found. So, yeah, I am Mm. so glad we're having this conversation. Believe me, and I hope our listeners are enjoying this too and give them a lot to think about. Mm. But I just want to say thank you so much. I I know we're close to our time. I just want to say thank you so much for joining me, Erica. I am so appreciative of the work that you're doing and the conversations that you're having. And I think one conversation at a time, maybe, Mm. you know, we can change the world, change the thinking about women to one that is appreciates us and helps us to flourish as women. I hope that that's the future my daughter has in Mm. this country. And I know that's the future you want for your children as well. That's right. Thank you so much, Gloria. It's been a real pleasure to be with you. I'm so glad you're tuning into the Gloria Purvis podcast and journeying with me through these important and sometimes challenging conversations. Please share this episode with a friend or family member. 
And be sure to subscribe to the Gloria Purvis podcast on your podcast app. Leave us a review if you can. I would love to hear from you. Oh, and by the way, you can follow me on Twitter at Gloria underscore Purvis and on Instagram at I am Gloria Purvis. The Gloria Purvis podcast is a production of America Media. It's produced by Sebastian Gomes and engineered by Frank Tucson. You can learn more about America Media at americamagazine.org. We'll see you next time. 